Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you both here uh, in the Worship Center. Uh, you are joining us over in our Ridge uh, venue. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and we're going to be kicking off a, a whole new series today. I'm excited about that. We'll get to it in just a minute. But uh, before we do, just one quick announcement of my own is that if you were here last week and you know we had an amazing service as we wrapped up our series on Pursuing God 101, but we also did an interview with uh, Pastor Dave Cox, who he and his wife Christy are going to be joining this amazing organization called Zoe that uh, kind of rescues kids that are being uh, victims of, of, slave, of sex trafficking around the world. And so if you were here, uh, you got to see that interview. It was amazing. Just a great listen and follow story. Um, but if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go online to our YouTube channel and, uh, and kind of watch that interview. But I also want to make you aware that this Friday night, and the details are in the back of your program, but this Friday night, we're doing a special worship night for Dave and Christy. We're going to be get, gathering, kind of worshiping, uh, spending some time in prayer. But they're going to be sharing a little bit more about Zoe, this calling on their life, and how we can get involved with that personally in our own lives. And so if you'd like to be, um, to be a part of that this Friday at 7 o'clock, details on the back of your, um, your program. But also, uh, if you would just like to be on their mailing list, so you would get information uh, about their, their ministry, if you'd like to s help support them financially in any way, just write Dave Cox today on the back of your little connect card inside your program, and then they'll, uh, they'll, you'll get that information. So we're just excited about that. But we're gonna, like I say, we're going to be going into our, our new um, series today. And so uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. And if you're brand new, a uh, special welcome. But I want to uh, call your attention to that because we'll be using it. And if you all are, are ready to go, we're all set. I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? How are we doing? Are you awake today? You're, you're good? It's like summer? Okay, good. That feels much better. All right. Let's pray. Father, we're just excited to be here at the, the verge of the launch of a whole new series. And one of the things we've learned over the years, God, is these series, uh, as you line them up, are, are, there's no accident that every series takes us to the next step of our journey of learning how to listen and follow you as a church, being transformed to be like you. And so we're excited as we talk today with this audience of one. What does it look like to live our life, not for the approval of others, but for the audience of one? And we pray as we go through this summer, as you unfold this series step by step, we pray your spirit would be here every week, including today, and you'd speak to us, whether it's over in the ridge or right here in our worship center, you'd be speaking loud and clear. And like always, we would listen and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, I'm not really sure whose idea it was or who came up with it first. But they spent a lot of time talking about it. They've been married for a while and uh, they're very excited. They're part of this city where this new movement is on the rise and it's just exciting times. And they know they want to participate. They want to be involved. They're excited about this. And yet at the same time, they want to exercise some caution. They don't want to go overboard. They don't want to go too crazy. They need to think of their future. And so they think of options. How can we participate, but, but not too much? And so in the process, as they discuss their options, they come up with one particular option that they settle on. And to be honest, they knew from the start, it was clearly would require some deception on their part. But as they looked at the options, they thought, this is the best option, and we're pretty sure there's no way anyone will ever find out. We think we can pull it off. 
And so after all the debates, after all the discussions, they agreed and they decided to put their plan into motion. And so they began to pursue the business transaction that would require for them to take this step. And when that was finished, they decided he would be the one to go to headquarters and make his presentation. And so on this particular day, he's walking down very familiar street. He's been down a million times before. But he's a little nervous because his inside his jacket is stuffed with cash. But it's not just the cash that's making him nervous. It's, it's the presentation. It's the meeting that's coming. But as nervous as he is, he keeps reminding himself there's no way that they could know. There's no way that they'll ever find out. I'm sure our secret is safe. And so with a little bit of fear, but a lot of confidence, he walked into the meeting. Little did he know that their plot had already been discovered. And that what was going to take place in the next few minutes, what his wife would find out in three hours was going to change your life forever. In fact, it was the worst decision they'd ever made in their lives. Well, today, we are kicking off a brand new series. It's called Unfiltered, the Audience of One. And for those of you who are new at Rocky Peak, and by new, I mean you've come in 2018, this is going to be a completely new series to you. For those of you who are old timers at Rocky Peak, meaning 2017 or before, uh, that you, you re- you're going to recognize this title because for you, this is going to be like the fourth season in a popular long-running TV drama or show kind of like Survivor or 24 or Homeland or shows that you shouldn't be watching, so I'm not mentioning. Um, and, uh, but this is like the fourth, uh, fourth season in an ongoing uh, drama. And so the, 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 the overall show is called Unfiltered. The series is called Unfiltered. And what this is, it's really a, a study of the life and teaching of Jesus. And what we've discovered in this study is that when it comes to Jesus, often we come to Jesus, the New Testament, the Bible, we come with many misconceptions, preconceptions. Uh, we come with what I like to call filters. Uh, filters that have built up over time, maybe from our church upbringing, maybe from Sunday school class, maybe from a college course, maybe from popular TV uh, show or talk, TV documentaries like on Discovery Channel or History Channel or Nat Geo or something. Maybe it's from popular movies or films or uh, TV shows or even uh, like novels in Da Vinci Code or something like that. And so um, we, we come to Jesus and it's often where we're looking at Jesus through these cultural filters that have built up over time. And so our goal in this series is to go back to the first century, uh, back to uh, one of the earliest and most popular and most uh, uh, important uh, biographies of the life of Jesus, which we call the Gospel of Matthew, to see if we can remove some of these filters and capture some new images of Jesus that are fresh and compelling and really help us to understand uh, what it is, who he is, and what it is to follow him. And so uh, if you were here in our last series, we, we let off uh, in the midst of the most famous speech ever given in the history of the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what I want to do today is just do kind of a quick review of what we've learned about the life of Jesus and his message he was sharing uh, before we launch in, jump back into the middle. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section is called Unfiltered Real Righteousness. So let's just set it up very quickly. It won't take long. 
But uh, uh, what we learned is that when Jesus in Matthew chapter four, he's baptized and then he goes to the north of the country to launch his, his ministry uh, in the north in the area called the Galilee. And when he goes up to the north, um, uh, his epic message, his amazing claim, is that the kingdom of the heavens, or the kingdom of God, that's long been promised by the prophets of Israel for really like a thousand years, that that time has actually come. The time when God is gonna return to the nation, uh, forgive them of their sins, pour out his spirit, turn all wrongs to right, and usher in this golden age, not just for Israel, but for all creation, that that time is very near. And on top of making this epic claim, he backs it up by doing these amazing, miraculous signs and wonders, uh, healing the sick, uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, calming the seas, uh, uh, turning water into wine, um, uh, exercising demons, uh, showing great power that are kind of the first signs of spring. That when the kingdom of God comes, all wrongs will be turned to right. We're seeing it in front of our eyes as, as people that are demonized are being delivered. People are, the blind are seeing, those who are lame are walking. We're seeing the prophecies of the kingdom coming to fruition right in front of our eyes. It's like the dawning of a new day. And so as a result, people are coming from greater and greater distances to hear Jesus teach, to maybe be healed, to catch a miracle, and to see what this kingdom is about. So this is the setting that we step into in Matthew chapter 5, where Matthew says, let me share with you some of the message of the kingdom Jesus was sharing. And so what he's sharing is sort of a highlight reel of some teaching did on this particular day. Uh, the sermon itself would have been much longer, but he's sharing some highlight, uh, highlights of that. And so in chapter five, Jesus starts this, uh, with what we call the Beatitudes, the kind of eight blessings. Hey, this is what the kingdom is about, and here's, here's who can be a part of my kingdom. Then he moves on uh, quickly to tell his disciples that you're the light of the world. As we move forward, as you listen and follow me, your lives are transformed. It's your job to go out into the world and light it up and show the path to life, the path to the kingdom. But when we get to chapter 5 and verse 20, we enter into the body, the main body of the sermon. And Jesus starts with a powerful statement that had to be shocking in his day. And I put it there on your note sheet. And this is what he said. He said, I tell you that unless your righteousness, you know, your, your rightness, your goodness, your truth, your integrity, the beauty of your life, unless your rightness surpasses that of two of the top religious groups of the day, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. So Jesus has come and he said, the kingdom is near. This is the kind of people that can come into the, the kingdom. You're to be the light of the world in this uh, coming kingdom. But he said, now, unless you're better than the current religious leaders that y'all look up to, you're not getting in. Now, this had to be shocking. This would be like telling a, a kid from Boston who's 10 years old, a good Boston Catholic, you know, who goes to Mass every week and does his confession and has been just totally bought in. Hey, kid, unless you're better than the, the priests, the, uh, the bishops, and the cardinals, you're not getting in. And if you're in the crowd that day, you're like, what are you talking about? What is this righteousness of the kingdom? What does God require of us? And what Jesus does is he begins to contrast and contrast what religious righteousness 
is compared to real righteousness. And so what we see that the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they had a religious righteousness. It was superficial. It was traditional. It was often built on man-made traditions and based on inaccurate interpretations of the word of God. And so Jesus said, let's compare uh, what religious righteousness looks like with real kingdom righteousness. And Jesus begins to share God's vision for our life that when we come to him, we would be transformed to be the people we are created to be, people like our Father in the heavens. And so he gives us six practical examples from 520 to the end of the chapter. He says, let's talk about what real righteousness is. Let's compare it to religious righteousness. And he gives us six examples in the area of anger, in the area of sex, in the area of marriage and divorce, the area of integrity, uh, the area of revenge. And most of all, as he wraps it up, in the area of love. And he says, for religious righteousness, if you love your friends, that's good enough. But for real righteousness, you need to be transformed to be like your father who loves even his enemies. And so that's where we left off at the end of chapter 5, as we're right in the middle of this sermon, where Jesus is spelling out the difference between real righteousness in terms of our relationships with others and religious righteousness. Now today, he's going to uh, move on. We move into a new section of the sermon where he begins to talk about what real righteousness looks like in our relationship with God. Now, as followers of Jesus, we understand this. If we want a relationship with God, we need to pursue God, right? We just talked about that in our last series. And that's going to look like there's certain things that the marks of a righteous person, a righteous person gives to the poor, a righteous person prays, a righteous person fasts. And so Jesus is going to kind of help us understand what real righteousness looks like in the area of spiritual disciplines as he kicks off this new uh, section of the sermon. So there in your note sheet, there's a section called Unfiltered Spiritual Disciplines, and let's jump in and see what he says. And by the way, for this series, you'll definitely need your Bible, um, because in the last two series, when we do like topical series here at Rocky Peak, we uh, usually will print the verses on the note sheet, put them on the screen just for time to make it faster, jump around. But uh, most of the time, we're going through books of the Bible, and so then you're definitely going to need your own Bible. And so if you don't have your own Bible, you're new here, you're not sure which kind of Bible to get, I would highly recommend getting what we call a study Bible. And if you go to our, our, uh, our bookstore, they can kind of show you, here's some suggestions, help you find one that'll work for you. But anyway, so right now, turn, you know, your Bible's open or your app's on, uh, we're going to pick it up at chapter 6 and verse 1. And so Jesus says, be careful, and he's talking to his followers. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness, or in the Greek it says, to do your righteousness in front of others. He said, when you're, when you're pursuing God, you're doing these right things that we need to do to pursue God. Make sure you're not doing it to impress others. If you do, you'll have no reward. Uh, in the Greek, it's the word pay, like wages. You'll get no payback from your Father in heaven. So that's the big principle. The big principle that's going to cover for the next 18 verses is that, hey, when you're pursuing God, it's important you pursue Him for the right reason. Not to impress others, but to really pursue God uh, for His own purposes, right? And now He's going to give us three examples in the next uh, 17 verses of what it looks like to pursue God in our life. And so he's gonna give us an example in the area of giving to the poor. He's gonna give us an example of prayer 
and he's going to wrap it up with an example of fasting. And every time he's basically going to say the same thing is that when you're doing this, don't do it for people, do it for God. Uh, do it because you're really pursuing God. Now, today, we're not going to go through all 17 verses. In the next three weeks, we're going to take an in-depth look at prayer and our, our giving to the poor and then prayer and then fasting. But for today, I just want to hit on the first illustration of, uh, of, uh, of giving to the poor, not because we're going to delve into it, but simply to help you see how this big picture principle of pursuing God, living for the audience of one, not the approval of others, how it plays out. All right, so let's just we'll look at this quickly. So verse two, it says, so when you give to the needy, this is his first illustration, uh, do not announce it with trumpets. Uh, don't make a big deal about it, as the hypocrites do, and this would be like the religious leaders, uh, in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. So they're giving, but they're giving to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. So why are they giving? They're giving to impress people. He says, great, that's exactly what, if you give to impress people, you will impress people, but that's all you're getting. Don't expect anything from God in that. You're not giving for him, you're giving uh, for yourself, and so that's what you're gonna get. And he said, uh, verse three, so, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We'll talk more about what he means by that next week. But so that your giving may be in what? Secret. Can we all say that together? Giving's in what? Secret, yeah, underline that word or circle it. That'll be important today. And then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you, all right? So, uh, so, so real quick passage. Uh, hey, when you live your life, uh, when you're pursuing God, pursue him for him, not to impress people. Uh, God will reward you, uh, otherwise you'll get nothing. And so kind of the basic principle. Now, here's what I wanna do. In the time that we have today, I want to break this down, and I wanna highlight three important principles about pursuing God in our life, how our relationship with God works, and then come back with two uh, important questions. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Unfiltered, the Audience of One, and we'll go through these fairly rapidly. It won't take a lot of time. They're fairly obvious once you call them out, but they'll, they'll, they'll lay a foundation for the questions I wanna ask and the growth areas of our life. So here we go. Number one, the first principle that jumps out is that motives really matter. That when we're pursuing God, that it's really important not just what we do, but why we do it. For example, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel would often be living in a high-handed sin against God. They're worshiping idols, they're uh, pursuing adultery, they're um, oppressing the poor, they're, uh, they're practicing injustice in the courts, uh, all these things are going on, and yet they're still going to the temple and they're offering the sacrifices and the incense and celebrating the holidays that God had required. And if you looked at like Isaiah 1, God says, stop bringing this meaningless offerings, you know? No, it's, they were doing the right things. Going to the temple, sacrifice, incense, prayers, they're doing them for the wrong reason. And so we see this throughout the Bible that when it comes to pursuing God, our motives really matter. Now, of course, this is not just true in terms of our relationship with God. This is true in our any relationship, right? Like, let's take a couple. Let's take a couple. Let's say that one of the couple, either the husband or the wife, is having an affair. 
And because he or she is having the affair, they're going overboard to be nice and to do great things for their spouse because they're trying to cover up what they're doing, right? And so the husband's bringing home flowers to his wife, even though he's having this affair. Uh, the wife is, maybe she's running extra errands, filling up the gas, you know, in the car because he hates doing that. Uh, that when the husband says, hey, let's get away for a weekend uh, a romantic getaway, she's having an affair, and she's like, oh yeah, I'll help plan it. You know, like we're doing all the right things. And so that is greatly appreciated until the spouse who's been betrayed discovers why the person's doing the right things. And when they discover it, the flowers don't make it better. They make it worse. The wife isn't saying like, well, he's having an affair, but at least he brought me flowers. <laughs> That's like salt in the wounds, isn't it? And so what Jesus says is, hey, when it comes to pursuing God, it's not just about doing the right things, it's about doing them for the right reasons. And so the religious leaders of the day, they were going through, they were doing the right things. They were giving the poor, they were praying, they were fasting. In fact, they were very proud about it. But they weren't really doing this to pursue God, they were doing it to impress people which would translate into power and control and prestige and perks and position in their life. And so Jesus says, hey, there's a difference between real righteousness and religious righteousness. And religious righteousness does the external things without the right heart. Real righteousness does the right things for the right reasons. Right? Now, number two, the second the second thing that jumps out that we're going to see uh, throughout this, uh, the next few weeks is that religion is dangerous. The, one of the things we learn from the study the life of Jesus is that religion can be very dangerous. It can kill. It's interesting. I was thinking about it this week. And, you know, back in about 2006 is when, uh, as a culture, for the very first time, we began to hear this term, the new atheists or new atheism. I don't know, some of you are familiar with that, some of you are not, but you know, popular names like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, and they began writing these books, and, and so they're called the New Atheists because they're not simply saying that, uh, that they don't believe in God, but what they're saying is that it's dangerous to believe in God. And what they're saying is if you look at human history, religion leads to all kinds of violence and oppression and racism and injustice. And so if we want to build a better world, we need to eradicate all religion, especially Christianity. And the interesting thing is, if you study the history of the world, you know they have a point. That there is a lot of truth to that. If you say the history of the world, so much has been done in the name of God or religion, whether it's Christianity or any other religion. You look at the terrorism in the world today. And so there's a lot of truth to that. But what this shows is not that religion is bad or not that pursuing God is bad or believing God. What it shows and what it reveals is the fallenness of the human heart. That we can take even the best things in life like say the teaching of Jesus and turn it into a tool of oppression or a tool of racism. What that reveals, what it reveals, it reveals not that religion is bad, it reveals 
the evil of the human heart. And you see this so clearly in the life of Jesus because who were the greatest opponents of Jesus? The religious leaders who were behind the plot to put Jesus to death. The religion leaders that religion kills. And the thing is, this is not just a danger for people out there. Religious leaders of Jesus' day, this is a danger in here. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're pursuing God, one of the greatest threats to your spiritual life is religion. Is taking the things of God and twisting or turning or misusing them in a way that destroys our life. And one of the ways this happens, one of the primary ways is through hypocrisy. When we start pretending to be something that we're not, or pretending to do right things for wrong reasons in order for personal gain. And it can be deadly. You know, we started today with a story of this couple that they live in this city, there's exciting things going on, they wanna be part of this movement, but they wanna be wise, think about their future, not go overboard, and so they're running through options in their mind, and they finally decide on this plan that's gonna require some deception, but fortunately, they're pretty sure no one can ever find out. Uh, You may have recognized, this is an account from the life of the early church. In the book of Acts, we're told that when the movement of Jesus was launched, the Holy Spirit came, it was an incredible time. People are coming to Christ, lives are being changed, thousands are being saved. Uh, And one of the marks of the early church was there's a tremendous love as the Holy Spirit poured out love on the church that they would, they shared their, 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 they shared their resources with one another. They helped support one another financially in hard times. And to the extent that some people even felt God just putting in their heart to sell property or houses to give to the apostles, bring the money to give the apostles to help the poor in this new growing community of Jesus. It was a beautiful thing. But when you get to Acts chapter five, after setting it up, Luke gives us a great story, uh, a a powerful account about one particular couple that wanna be part of the movement, but they don't wanna give everything they have as property. So they come up with this plan, we're gonna sell the property, and we're gonna present it to the apostles, but we're going to pretend that it's everything we got from the property. Now you say, why would someone do that? I mean, first of all, this was their property. They didn't have to sell it. It wasn't like there was some rule that you, everyone has to sell their property. It was their property. They could sell it or not sell it. They could give it or not give it. That was up to them. If they wanted to sell it and give half it, it's up to them. So why would they sell it and then come and pretend that it's everything? Well, because they were giving to impress people. It's because they're doing exactly what Jesus said. They're doing their righteousness to be seen by men. And they, like, if we don't give it all, if we say, like, hey, we sold this property for 400000 and here's 200000 that they might look not as generous as other people who are selling and giving everything. And so because they want the reputation and they want to be seen as generous people, they come up with this plan to sell it and pretend they've given it all. And so as he's walking there, as the husband's going, Ananias is his name, as he's walking there that day and his, his jacket's full of cash, um, 
he's thinking, you know, like, I think we've got this wired. Uh, I'm sure he's a little bit nervous, but he's thinking, you know, who could know? How could anyone ever find out? The problem is the Holy Spirit has come. And the Holy Spirit can be dangerous, right? And so when he gets there, Peter already knows what's going on. And after, after the guy goes through this ruse of, yep, we sold it, here's the whole amount, he says, well, you know what? The Holy Spirit told me you were gonna say that and um, you're gonna drop dead right now. <laughs> and boom, he falls dead. And three hours later, his wife falls dead when she finds out it was the worst decision of their married life, right? So it's a dramatic illustration, but it highlights the point that religion can kill. And one of the ways it kills is when we buy into hypocrisy to pretend to be something that we're not in order to do the right things for the wrong reason. And so your life and my life, our example probably won't be that dramatic. I mean, if anyone falls over dead during the offering today, we'll know the Lord has spoken. But probably our examples will not be that dramatic. But the point is the same, is that as followers of Jesus, this catches, this is always a temptation for every follower of Jesus because we are the people who practice righteousness, are we not? We're the people that pray. We're the people that fast. We're the people that give. We're the people that serve. We're the people that uh, kind of pursue God. And what I'm saying is if you're a follower of Jesus, you are particularly in dangerous territory because the flesh, the enemy will always try to get us to pretend to be something we're not in order to use our righteousness to achieve personal gain. And whenever we do that, it leads to death and destruction in our life. And number three. The third principle is that according to Jesus, the antidote is the audience of one. You say, well, okay, so this is a danger for anyone who pursues God of giving into this temptation. In other words, if you're a full-on sinner, right? You're a heathen, there are certain temptations in your life, right? That if you're a heathen, the Satan is not gonna come with a temptation to pretend, right, that you're doing something for God. You're not doing anything for God. But if you're a believer, this is a unique temptation. And according to Jesus, this is poison, and he says, Hey, the antidote for this poison is to learn to live your life for the audience of one. So here's what I want you to catch. As a fallen human race, we all, to one degree or another, are addicted to the approval of others. And Jesus says, hey, the only way to escape this trap is to learn your life uh, learn to live your life not for the approval of others, but for the audience of one. To live your life for your Father. And so he gives us these three, uh, three great examples. Let's look at the, uh, on your um, note sheet there, Matthew 6, 2. We just read this. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. So we're living our life for the audience of others Truly, I tell you, they receive the reward for it. But when you give the needy, don't let your left hand uh, know what your right hand is doing. You're, so you're giving maybe in secret. And then your father who sees what is secret will reward you. So don't live for the audience out there. Live for the audience of one. 
He goes on to the next illustration about prayer, and he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to, be, to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, to be seen for others. They're, they're doing the right things, but they're living for the approval of others. He says, truly I tell you, they've received the reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Live your life for the audience of one. Do the right things, but live for the audience of one. Then the last example on fasting, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so it may not be obvious to others you're fasting. Only your father who is unseen and your father who sees what's done in secret or what. So three times he reiterates his principle, hey, the antidote the secret here, the way you avoid the trap is to learn to live your life not for the approval of others, but to learn to live your life for the audience of one, right? Now, we've laid some groundwork. Motives matter. Religion kills. It's very dangerous. The antidote is uh, learning to live our life for the audience of one. So now I have a couple questions, right? This is where we're going to land the plane, get really practical, and say, okay, let's talk about our lives, and what does it look like to pursue real righteousness? If we want to be transformed, we want to be like Jesus, we want to live out these epic lives that we're called to, to live, if we want to become the people we're created to be, uh, what does it look like to take this teaching of Jesus and pursue God? And so there in your note sheet, you have a section, unfiltered, two key questions, and here's number one. The first question is, how honest are you? How honest are you? Now, when I say how honest, I'm not asking, did you tell the truth on your taxes? Right? I'm talking about a specific kind of honesty. And I'm focusing in on your relationship with God. And I'm saying, when it comes to your relationship with God, how honest are you about your deepest thoughts, your deepest emotions, and your deepest motives? What we've seen today is that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, their problem was that instead of being honest, they, were, they lived a life of pretending to be something they were different. This is what killed them. And so we're going to see today, if we want to be a people that pursue real righteousness, true transformation in our life, one of the most important lessons we learn is to learn to be radically honest with God about what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and why we're doing what we're doing, our motives. This is absolutely critical. In fact, this is a principle we often teach here at Rocky Peak, but I believe it with all my heart. It's one of the most important principles of spiritual life. It's why we talk about it so much, is that the first step to growth, all right, and I want to put neon lights around this. I don't want you to miss this. The first step to growth in any area of our life is radical honesty. The first step to growth in any area. So this is true in all areas of life, not just our spiritual life. Let me illustrate with other areas and we'll bring it back. So for example, let's say that you're here today and you have a bad marriage. The first step to making it a good marriage is to admit you have a bad marriage. 
As long as you want to pretend it's not that bad, all couples have problems, I'm sure it'll work out. It will never get better. Let's say that today that you are in financial trouble. Your credit card debt has gone through the roof. You're having a hard time paying your bills. You're paying your bills by putting more on this credit card to pay that credit. If you are in financial trouble, the first step to getting out of financial trouble is to be radically honest that we have a problem and we have to deal with it. As long as you pretend it's not that bad, everyone has credit card debt, it will never get better. If you're in a dead-end job where your whole industry is shutting down and everything's being offshored to India or China or whatever it is, the first step to your future is to admit this is going nowhere. I need to get re-educated. I need a, a career change. As long as you want to put your head in the sand and say, well, I've always been fortunate before, maybe I'll be the one person that's hired in America. You're in trouble. Are you with me here? Then in any area of our life, this, this is why the recovery movement, like a celebrate recovery, is so important and so powerful because they have understand this principle that the first step to change in any area of our life is radical honesty, I have a problem, it is bigger than me, I need to get help. Now this is true in all of life, but it's especially true in our spiritual life. That if we want to grow, if we want to be transformed, if we want to think like Jesus, we want to have the emotions of Jesus, we want to have the motives of Jesus, we want to have the impact of Jesus, the first step is to admit radically when we don't. And as long as we want to pretend that we have it all together, whether pretending to ourselves, to God, or others, we will never, ever pursue and grow in real righteousness. We may grow in religious righteousness. We'll never be transformed with real righteousness. Now, this is one of the problems of the religious leaders of the day. When Jesus came he was able to help pretty much anyone who wanted help. But the one kind of person he couldn't help was a person who refused to admit they had problems. And so when Jesus came, do you remember what he said? He said, I have not come to help the healthy. I have come to help the sick. And what he's saying is not that, hey, there are two kinds of people. Some are healthy, some are sick. I've just come for the sick ones. What he's saying is that until you realize you're sick and are willing to admit that, I can't help you. And this is why radical honesty is so critical. Can I tell you something? As followers of Jesus, we should be the most radically honest people in the world. And the reason is, is because we have a God, we understand grace, that our message is grace. It's grace that allows us to be radically honest. If you know that you're deeply loved as you are in spite of everything wrong with you, it allows you to come out into the light and be honest because you know you're deeply loved. 
and, and that God wants to heal you. If you don't understand grace, this is very difficult because you're afraid if I come out, if I admit that motive, if I admit that thought, if I admit that emotion, God will not love me. It makes it very difficult to be radically honest. And so as followers of Jesus, the more we grow in our understanding of grace, the easier it becomes to become radically honest. Can I tell you something? In my life, it was a a life-changing day when I began to realize that every problem I had was ultimately not my problem, it was God's problem because I belong to Him. And so if I'm screwed up, I don't have to fix myself in order to have a relationship with God. If I'm screwed up, I'm his problem. And what I need to do is come into his presence and say, Father, look at this heart, this motive, this temptation, this fantasy, this lust, this desire, this attitude, this hatred. I'm a wreck. I need to come into your presence. I need help. And it's there that we find change. It's there that we experience transformation. It's there we experience renewal. We come into the presence of God, radically honest, messed up people. The church should be the most radically honest place in the world because there is nothing to fear here, right? The reality is, is often in Christian circles, there are many Christians that are the least authentic people in the world. They're going through horrendous times. They're full of doubt. They're messed up with sin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. God is good. All things work together for good. You are so full of whatever, right? Are you with me here? Is that often, I'm telling you, if I had a problem and I wanted to go to a place and find grace, Many times the church in America is one of the last places I'd often go. I'd rather go to a bar often. And God's vision for our life is radical honesty, not pretending. And when we learn to be radically honest, we begin to understand the grace of God, we can come in and we find freedom and we find hope, and we find change. Because the reality is, God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And it's this combination of truth and grace that we meet in Jesus. And so the question is, how honest are you? The second second question is, who are you living for? Now, we talked about this earlier, and I know it's church, but if we could just be honest for a minute, I think we'd all have to admit that every one of us, me included, can we just admit that we all are addicted to one degree or another to the approval of others? And if you don't believe this, just go back 10, 20 years and look at an old picture and your hairstyle. (laughs) And after you start laughing, stop laughing, which will take a while, by the way, you say, whatever made me do that? You know, that mullet, you know, whatever, the crimped hair, right, the fro, whatever. What made me do that? The only thing that made you do it, everyone else thought it was cool, so you thought it was cool. We are social creatures, and one of the products of the fall 
is that as a race, we care more about what others think than what God thinks. And what I want you to do, is catch, is that Jesus has come to set us free from that fear of man. Like he's come to set us free and to move in this future that God has for us. But in order to move into it, we have to wean ourselves off from addiction to approval. And we have to learn to live our life for an audience, for the audience of one. And you know, one of the things, if you study the life of Jesus, one of the things that jumps out at me when I study it, one of the things that draws me most to Jesus is how he was just so, uh, like, unconcerned what people thought about him. Like, if you read him, he, he was just like a rock. Like, he, he was like laser beam. We studied this in our last series. His top passion in life was to know, to please, and to love his father. And that's the only person he cared, that's the person he cared ultimately about. That's what he cared about, my father. And you could hate me, you could reject me, you can revile me, you can mock me, you can attack me, but I'm not gonna stop being who he's called me to be. There's this incredible freedom. And aren't we drawn to people like this? When we see people that march to the beat of a different drummer, they're not concerned what everyone, th- aren't we drawn to them, right? And the reason we're drawn is this is who we are created to be. We are created to be free. And so one of the things that Jesus does when, when Jesus comes into our life is he wants to begin freeing us from this addiction to approval. Remember, the whole goal of following Jesus is to become like Jesus. When you see who Jesus is, he is free from that addiction to approval. And so as Jesus comes into our life, he's going to be freeing us from this addiction and freeing us to, to live a new life that lives for the audience of one. And one of the ways that he teaches us to grow in this and to free ourselves from this addiction is to practice what's often been called the discipline of secrecy. Now, uh, if you were just in our Pursuing God study, we, towards the end, talked about spiritual disciplines, and I listed some of the classic-type disciplines, and one of them was a discipline of secrecy, and it may have gone over your head because we didn't really develop it. But the idea, what it, the discipline of secrecy is where we choose to keep our successes silent. It's where we choose to not talk about things that impress others as a way of weaning ourselves off this need for addiction, uh, this addiction to approval. So Jesus here gives us some examples. Like he, we saw it all three of these three examples, but let's just look at the first one. So um, in Matthew 6, 3, he says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. In other words, keep it secret. Practice secrecy. So that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And so three times, same principle. He says, when you're doing the right things, uh, you need to do them for the right reasons. And the way to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons is to practice the discipline of secrecy. Do the right things, but don't let others know you're doing it. And that's one of the best ways just to make sure that your motives are pure and that you're not doing this to impress people and that keeps you on track. So you're doing it to please God and then God will reward you and he will pay you back for that, right? And we'll talk more about that concept of payback next week. Um, So uh, let me just put a, a quick sidebar here that I believe there are times in our life when it's appropriate to share what God has done in our life. There's times in our life where it's appropriate to talk about what he's taught us about, say, prayer or fasting or giving. 
There are times in our life where in our uh, small group of trusted friends to share what we're going through or what we're learning. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We'll talk more about it next week. But just in general, he said, in general, that the way to break this addiction to approval is to practice this discipline of secrecy. Now, if you try to do this, you're going to discover a couple things. When we try to do this, a couple things that we begin to discover. Number one, it is not as easy as it sounds. It's amazing how many times, let's say that you're starting out now and you're, you're doing this pursuing God thing and you're building this rhythm of relationship in your, in your life. It's amazing how many times you're going to be tempted to just let that drop to someone, Right? Yeah, I'm really tired this week. You know, it's been awesome. I mean, I'm getting up an hour earlier to spend with the Lord um, every day. Um, and it's been crazy, but it's just making me tired, right? Uh, it's like, oh, wow, you know, that, that assignment project was so cool. We weren't able to take vacation. We just gave our money there. Right? Um, you know, someone asks us, uh, you know, they come up and they, they remind us about a situation they've asked us to pray for. And we say, oh, we've been praying about that. And we really haven't. It's amazing how our fallen nature craves being worshipped. And so what happens is we want to use even the good things, the righteous things, to like, you know, get some positive feedback here to, in order to uh, get some worship in our lives. So let me, let me just I'll give you an illustration from my own life because I mean, we all deal with it. I deal with it, you deal with it. But um, back in the fall um, of this last year, um, we launched some pilot groups for Rooted. We're going to do Rooted in January. So, we launched. so Lynn and I uh, led uh, uh, one of these uh, pilot groups. And during that session, um, God began to um, lead me to start practicing a new spiritual discipline, right? One that I hadn't done before. And it was very cool. And I really, it was like really fun. It was enjoyable. I was really growing from it. And so, you know, when you're experiencing something new, whether it's a new restaurant or a new motorcycle or another new motorcycle or you're, you know, like when you're experiencing something cool in your life, something that's definitely a cool thing, like a motorcycle, that... Um, that you want to share it with others, right? Like it could be as simple as going to a new taco stand. It's all awesome, but it's just natural. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And so um, I think there's natural. I was excited about this. It was natural. I wanted to share it with friends of the group. Here's this thing. And, you know, and in one sense, nothing wrong with that. But I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, no, on this one, I want it to keep between you and me. And I think the reason was obvious. It was like this was the kind of discipline that if I'd shared it with a group of friends, it would, be, it would just be kind of impressive. It was kind of an impressive thing, right? And so it's like the Holy Spirit was just telling me like, like don't do that. Let's keep this pure. Let's keep it between you and me, right? And here's the thing. As I said, yeah, that makes sense and we'll do that. Um, two things I discovered over the course of that, say the next uh, 10 weeks worth. Uh, number one is it was much harder than you'd think. Like you'd think like, yeah, that makes sense, great. But there were so many times in conversation, in life group, with my friends, uh, uh, family members, I just wanted to let it drop, this new thing I was doing. Now, again, part of that was totally innocent. It was, it was, it was cool, it was exciting, fun to share. But there was another part that was coming from my dark side. 
what the Bible calls our old nature, our flesh, just wanting to get the affirmation, wanting to be worshipped, wanting to be thought of higher than, uh, than, than they did, whatever, just wanting the praise. Are you with me in this? And so there's a part of it, that part of it was fine, but there was a part of it that wasn't, and what I realized, it was harder than I thought. It would come up time and time again. And every time it did, I had to listen and follow. I had to die to the flesh and rise to the spirit, right, and put that thing to death and just, no, just keep it between the Lord and I. Here's the second thing I learned, though. The second thing I learned, about six weeks in, it began to get easier all of a sudden. It was like there had been this battle, and not like overwhelming battle, but, you know, it's like there's a, a battle at a certain level, but that at a certain point, it's like the battle began to subside. And instead of battle... I began to experience freedom. And it was a freedom and a peace and a contentment and not need. Not a need to tell. And here's the thing, what was really cool was that I began to experience freedom at a new level from that need for approval of others in other areas unrelated to that discipline. And so what Jesus says is that, hey, I've got a vision for your life and this vision is total transformation, you would become like me, and you'd be free from this addiction to approval. And he said, and one of the ways to start practicing it is that when you're doing the right things, you know, you're serving in kids' ministry for 12 years, you're uh, helping the poor, um, you're spending uh, extra time, long time with God, you're memorizing scripture, you're giving generously, and God is calling you to give more generously. And when God is working in your life and the Spirit is leading, he says, when that happens, let's just keep it between you and I, not because he's trying to restrict us, but because he's trying to free us. You see, every time in our life that we kind of brag on ourselves, even subtly on these things, it's like taking another hit on the addiction pipe of approval. Like everything we do, it's like feeding that. And every time we listen to the Spirit, I'm gonna let that go, I'm just keep it moving on. It's another step to freedom. Does that make sense? And so what we're gonna be learning is that in the series is that God has a vision for our life. It's big, it's beautiful, it's profound. But in order to become the person that we're created to be, we have to learn to live our lives not for the approval of others, but for the audience of one. Now, we're gonna be going right now into a time of communion. And here's what I want you to do. First of all, don't stop listening to me. <laughs> I know there's certain code words. You like say it and the note sheet goes away and the mind turns off and you start thinking donuts. Um, <laughs> I, I need you to stick with me here because We've chosen to do communion today on this week for a particular reason. And the reason is, as followers of Jesus, like I said, we should be the most radically honest people in the world. You know, one of the things I love here at Rocky Peak is that there's a culture of authenticity that's growing. And I see it, and often it's even in the water, you know, because... It's like, I, I'll, see it, I'll, I'll see it these next step desserts. So I have people in my home that have often been there two or three weeks. And people are sharing so honestly the things going on in their life. It's just like surprising. But something that they're sensing, it's a safe place. And this is one of our values as a church, this value of authenticity. 
being able to be a safe place. And the reason authenticity is such a high value is because the first step to growth is radical honesty. We can't grow, we can't change, we can't become like Jesus. We can't be real righteousness without radical honesty. And so as we come to communion today, we want to celebrate communion and celebrate this relationship of grace that God invites us into. Because that's what, that's what the cross is about. It's about when we were sinners far from God, that he loved us as we were. And because of that, there's a freedom to come and be honest and be transformed. And so as we come today to communion, here's what I want to challenge you. Communion is not a time we try to clean up our act and pretend to be better than we are so that Jesus will accept us. Communion is a place we confess who we aren't so that we can be healed. And so as we come today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, this communion table is for you. It's a symbol of our relationship with him through his life, his death, his resurrection for us. If you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you not to take communion because communion's like a wedding ring. It's a symbol of a relationship. If you've not yet entered into a relationship where you've given your life to Jesus, received his gift of forgiveness, and bowed your knee to him as your king, then you want to wait until you have to take communion. But if you're here today, whether you're here or over in the ridge, and today this vision of grace, this vision of Jesus as your healer has captured your heart, and you say, I want to ask Jesus to forgive me and to come into my life, and I surrender my life to him so I can be healed and restored. I want this journey. There's no better way than to come to communion and to receive the bread and the wine which represents his death for you, that you could be forgiven and restored and come under his leadership. And so as we go into this time of worship, we're gonna be singing together around the room in both of our venues are the communion tables. During this time of prayer, uh, worship is encouraged to go and, and partake, find a place to pray. So would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that we come, we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for suffering on that cross for us so that we could be forgiven. We thank you for the right relationship we can enter into you through your death and your death alone. We thank you that through your resurrection we can rise with you to a new life through the power of your spirit. As we come today, Lord, we're doing this to remember what you did to remind ourselves that we, as followers of Jesus, we don't just receive grace, that we live in a place called grace. And we pray that you would meet us now, help us to trust you, trust in that love, that we could bring with radical honesty our deepest thoughts, our deepest fears, our strongest emotions, our best and worst motives, and bring them out into the light where there we could be healed and transformed and discover real righteousness, the people we are created to be. We pray that as we worship you now, everything else would fall away. What others think of us, our past, the way we've limited ourselves because of our self-conceptions, all that would fall away as we come into your presence and we listen to you and to your voice only. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Lead me to a new place. And that's what we want to be learning in this series, leading us to a new place. 
where we are less and less living for the approval of others and moving in the freedom of our future of living for an audience of one. Amen? Amen. May it be, as you go today, whether you're here or on the ridge, uh, to my right and your left in both of our worship centers, you've got um, some, a prayer team that would love to pray with you about anything. I've got badges on. Looking forward to next week as Jesus begins to talk about what does it look like to do righteousness, to be a person like our Father uh, that's created. What does it look like to be transformed? One of the things we're going to learn next week is one of the ways Jesus wants to transform us is transform our heart to be like His heart which is a heart of generosity, uh, but not just to like kingdom movement or church or to uh, parachurch or ministries or mission, but to be, uh, to have his heart for the poor. And so we're going to talk about growing in generosity next week, his vision for our lives. I hope you can be here. I'm very excited about that. So may the Lord bless you this week. May this be a week where increasingly as you listen and follow, you learn to die to that old self what wants to put self on the throne and wants self to be worshiped. And then you die to that old life and you rise to this new life, which is about living for the audience of one and the freedom that comes from that, where we don't live for the approval of others, but we live for the one who matters most. Amen? God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.